This podcast was recorded at 8 a.m. on 10 May, Jakarta time. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Reformasi Dispatch. I'm Jeff Hutton. And I am Kevin O'Rourke. Kevin, it never fails. It's Mudik, and although we're not supposed to have, but... The guy who fixes my air conditioner the, when it gets leaky has gone on Moody and he's not coming back. And I seem to remember the same thing happening last year when they weren't supposed to go on Moody. My theory is the ban, when, they, when the government bans the exodus of the Moody from the cities to the countryside, it just it, it, it makes things worse because it constitutes a challenge to any dude with a motorbike. They just want to test their ability to evade the ban by using every back road they've ever learned their entire life. Even if they don't want to go to the village, even if they don't have a village to go to, they're just going to go out and do it just because they can't. Ah, uh, Beggy Tula, Indonesia. <laughs> well, but for me, I mean, COVID-19 be damned. I have got a leaky air conditioner. And now it's because he's, he's uh, run the gauntlet and Pulang Kampung for an even longer period of time. I've got a stack of towels that I have to put under... <laughs> Oh, well, if that's the only problem that this uh, period uh, creates, then I'm pretty lucky. Yeah, that's a way to keep it in perspective. Coming up on the pod, battening down the hatches ahead of an all but assured surge in COVID-19 cases after the Lebaran holidays. New polling on the presidential horse race. Moldoko is a no-go. But first, the KPK, the Corruption Eradication Commission, may be eradicating its star investigators. 75 key personnel, including the anti-corruption investigator, Novel Basweden, failed a civil service examination. Now, this exam is part of a 2019 decision by President Joko Widodo to fold the KPK into the civil service. The test ventured into such relevant territory as to whether the investigators recite the kunut during the afternoon prayer and their views on LGBT issues. Pardon me. Rest assured, however, the KPK is not, repeat, not purging itself of its best graft busters. Let's have a listen to Police General Furley Bahurli here last week at a press conference. Kevin, what's he saying there? Well, he's insisting that the KPK has no intention or plan whatsoever of removing these people from their jobs or sacking them from their positions, uh, and that any media who reports that is perpetrating an irresponsible hoax, and he's uh, putting this message across in a very menacing tone. But then now what we have, of course, is uh, headlines about a letter circulating with his signature showing that the 75 same people have been rendered non-active. Right. We should note that podcast is going to come out first thing Wednesday morning. And we're recording this uh, Monday morning in, in Jakarta. As uh, the timestamp at the beginning of the pod suggests, things may have changed. And this is a rapidly changing 
uh, story. But it is incredibly troubling because Nobel Vazwedan is, what, the closest thing to a living saint right now in Indonesia? Um, we had the, the distinct honor of interviewing him just to, what was last year? He was between surgeries. He wasn't able, actually able to get back to um, Singapore for a follow-up surgeries on one of his eyes. He was suffering infections. Because of the acid attack. Well, he was on his way to prayer, morning prayer, and some rat bastards came along and blinded him with acid. Yeah, and those were police. Well, low-level police, right? I mean, they were just uh, obviously there was it was it wasn't I wasn't part of a conspiracy at all. Now was it? it was some bad apples, right? Fair to say, then. I mean, this is terrible. The KPK is part of the government that usually gets high marks on the part of the uh, Indonesian people for doing their job and standing up uh, against uh, widespread graft and corruption. In business since 2003, and now it seems to be fading away, has, can you give us the back, why would Jokowi, who ran for election in 2014 as a clean skin, as a reformer, why would he bargain this away? Because it seems that that's what's happened. Well, um, sounds like you're asking me for my conspiracy theory. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> conspiracy theory. Yeah. <laughs> okay, fine. No, no, no. <laughs> On the balance of probabilities, what do you think is happening here? Oh, well, in that case, I don't know. Um, but my conspiracy theory is that um, uh, my hunch is that there was a grand bargain struck between Widodo and Parliament whereby he agrees with their long-standing aim to neutralize the KPK in exchange for their passage of the jobs omnibus, which we don't very much wanted. So that kind of comports with the style of the Widodo administration on other issues. Uh, for example, constitutional court justices received a, a bunch of uh, favors and benefits from Widodo, and uh, that's prior to their hearing appeals on the jobs on the bus. So it's sort of a quid pro quo arrangement there, it seems. So I, I think that that's maybe why Widodo sacrificed, in effect, the, the KPK. But it's uh, short-sighted because the KPK is actually integral to bringing about the investment that the jobs omnibus intends to achieve uh, because the, you know, the broader issue with the investment climate in Indonesia is legal certainty. Right. What do you think happened here with this, with this exam? Yeah. So this is a, you know, it was an outlook test um, that uh, examines their Wawasan uh, Kabangsaan or their perspective on the nation. So it's a, it's a one-off customized test uh, contrived by somebody. It's not even really clear who, uh, there's an entity called the uh, Civil Servants Agency, BKN, and um, they were involved. But whether they actually wrote the test themselves or whether someone at the KPK wrote it for them and handed it over to the BKN to uh, administer is unclear, but it asked all sorts of funny questions. So one critic from Nadatul Ulama came out yesterday and, and denounced this test. This is the biggest Muslim organization in the world, right? The NU. Yeah, and this is somebody within their uh, Institute for Studies and Policy Research. So he, he himself is not a big name per se, but uh, he issued a quote in, in the press saying that this uh, national outlook test was, quote unquote, racist, sexist, discriminative and weird. <laughs> um, and uh, so people who <laughs> racist, sexist, discriminatory and weird. <laughs> ah, 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 ah. Uh, the people who took it said that it asked all sorts of uh, uh, odd questions. So ostensibly, it was designed to filter out 
KPK personnel who are too extremist on, on one side or the other, like uh, too far inclined towards radical Islam, perhaps, or too far inclined towards authoritarian, anti-democratic entities. Um, but it ended up just asking all sorts of strange questions about their marital status and uh, their views on sexuality and the views on the Free Papua movement and um, how they perform prayers. Uh, uh, and so it, it was highly subjective uh, and there was essays. Um, so I think it provided scope for subjectiveness and the assessments. And it turns out that uh, failed 75 people who uh, overlap almost precisely with the group within the KPK out of 1,350 people who took the test, who have been quite critical of the new chair, uh, the police commissioner general, Firli Bahuri. Oh, wow. That's so coincidental. Yeah. And this sort of stems back from this requirement back in 2019, where Widodo agreed to convert the KPK personnel from uh, non-civil service status to civil service status. Back in 2003, the original commissioners of the KPK insisted that their personnel be exempt from civil service rules because civil service rules date from the Suharto era, where it was all about political loyalty and control. And they provide for all sorts of instruments for controlling and manipulating personnel. And so the KPK commissioners back in 2003 wanted to be free from that so that the KPK could actually be genuinely in independent, and they got it, uh, and now Widodo has sacrificed that. And it's really against Widodo's interest, because now um, whenever the KPK does anything, it's going to be accused of acting on behalf of the president, and he's, he's not going to be able to deny that anymore, because, in fact, the, the people doing this are indeed civil servants who are ultimately under the control of the executive branch. How did it work back then, and probably to a certain extent now, when you say the civil service created during the Suharto era was rife with corruption, I think you said a few times, well, corruption was point. Right. It's, it's not corruption. That's just really rent seeking is how you make a living. If you don't do that, you can't pay the rent. Can, can you give us an example like how it would work if you're working in a post office or in the you know, tax office, I suppose, or, or um, the office where they hand out the katepe, the ID cards that everyone has to... Everyone over 18, I think 18, has to carry. What was the sort of garden variety corruption that everyday Indonesians had to put up with? Um, you complicate the rules deliberately to provide an incentive for somebody to pay a bribe under the table to circumvent these uh, onerous rules. That's one way. Uh, another way is uh, collusion. And then there's there's uh, controls over the spending. There's um, you know, markups and kickbacks. There's all sorts of ways of going about it. There's... <laughs> Is it better now? Well, no, I don't think so. No, because uh, just last December, they had this um, exposure of 10% uh, markups and kickbacks on the emergency pandemic food aid for the poor, which you know is just about as uh, dastardly as, as it could be. <laughs> and uh, no. no, right. Yeah. No, I was just talking about, you know, some, some poor sod has to take time, work, time off work to go renew their cate pay. Are they, do they have to run the gauntlet like they did back in 2003? Um, yeah, okay. So the improvements in public services do happen uh, in certain places at certain times. And um, it seems as if there's uh, gains made in one area and um, there's backsliding elsewhere. So um, it depends on who you are, where and when. How does this play out, do you think? I mean, Novel Basuidan got such a high profile do you see them backing off this? Uh, is he just, you, you can't fire Novo Basuidan. 
Right. But um, so far, nobody's uh, really helping him or supporting Novell. Um, nobody in parliament, really. Uh, nobody in the administration. Not even really the constitutional court. They did issue an uh, equivocal statement about this uh, that probably won't help matters. And the press, even the press, is not uh, really being terribly outspoken about it. So, yeah, I think Mahuri should be able to get away with it. Okay, well, from governance to COVID-19, last week, Indonesia's version of Dr. Anthony Fauci, I think she might be, Sita Nadia Tarmizi, she oversees the prevention of communicable diseases at the health ministry, said the government was preparing for a likely surge in the number of daily cases of COVID-19. That is following the end of the of the Labaran holidays and the influx, the returnees even, after travel restrictions ease on May 17th. <clears throat> there's a really, I mean, in the context of what's happening in, in India, there's a really telling quote that sort of is a sign of the time. So we are re- reviewing the readiness of hospitals, including the availability of oxygen, disposable medical materials, medicine, ventilators, and human resources. And I don't know how what kind of traction those got, but doesn't jibe with the current caseload of about 6,000 per day now. It's almost like COVID has seeded, has receded from uh, the national consciousness and um, people aren't terribly worried. And suddenly there is a uh, now a worry among the government that they might be caught on the back foot. Is this a good sign or a bad sign? I mean, May 17th is just around the corner as well next week. Right. Yeah, no, it's a good sign that uh, clearly there's some thought being put into the uh status and capacity of the healthcare system, because uh, that's really Indonesia's uh, Achilles heel is the limited capacity. So even though cases have uh, never spiked anywhere near the level seen in quite a few of the worst cases around the world, still even the uh, relatively low spike that occurred in January was sufficient to overflow uh, Jakarta's hospitals. Uh, That's how limited the uh, uh, healthcare capacity is. So that's precisely what's uh, been necessary these past few months is to uh, anticipate an, another wave because that wave is not an if that that is going to happen because uh, all four national holidays uh, since the pandemic began uh, resulted in increased growth rates of infections uh, after a period of about uh, 18 to 20 days. So uh, the first week of June, there's going to be a uh, an increase in transmissions for sure. The only question is uh, how long will that increase go on for and uh, will it be sufficient to overflow the hospitals or not? How bad was it last year after, you know, two or three weeks after Idul Fitri? What kind of spike did we see in infections then? Well, um, 20 days after Idul Fitri in 2020, the uh, weekly growth rate hit 75%, um, which is pretty much the uh, the all-time high uh, before it receded down back um, to the 10% level shortly thereafter. But then the um, growth rate exceeded 50%. Uh, it, it hit peaks of 50% week on week three times uh, since then. And uh, one of those was 20 days after the Independence Day holiday. Another was 18 days after the uh, birth of Muhammad holiday. And um, yeah, that was 19 days after uh, New Year's. So there's quite a clear pattern of holidays precipitating <clears throat> spikes in case detection growth rates. Yeah. So 
we could very easily see a situation where three weeks after Edo Fitri holidays, we're running daily infection rates of between 20 and 30,000. Because that's based on what happened last year. Right. Well, <clears throat> so the, uh, um, yeah, at the peak in, in January of this year, they, they got up to around 12,000 a day. And that was after a pretty prolonged uh, increase throughout the months of uh, November and December. So uh, Indonesia does have some advantages this time around. Uh, healthcare workers are all vaccinated. So COG in the transmission function, you know, that's no longer a problem like it had been. Even frontline workers, uh, over a third of them are fully vaccinated now. So um, those are the ones, those, these are people who are mixing and, and have the potential to further propagate transmission. So that's good. There's also more awareness and there's, I think, probably better compliance with mask wearing and protocols. So yeah, I think there's, there's optimism that Indonesia can avoid the 12,000 per day level that prevailed in uh, January. But, you know, it's just really totally unpredictable. Uh, the mobility from the Beetle Fitri holiday is uh, is is massive, and it's uh, it's there's stricter prohibitions on travel this year, but the travel is still happening nonetheless, and it's happening at a time when the the <clears throat> background case loads are much higher this year than they had been a year ago. Um, the 2020 Beetle Fitri. Yeah, I did um, some reporting last year. The return to Jakarta, the yearly return return to Jakarta from Mudi. I went out to the Persahabatan Hospital. If you've got 17 people who need 16 beds, then that's when you've got problems. So it's, it's it, the, the bottleneck is in the healthcare infrastructure, not just the beds. You know, each one of those beds needs a, a dedicated nurse and intensive care unit nursing. Nursing is um, is intensive care unit nursing is a, a rare skill, and there are all, there's only so many of them to go around. Uh, so that's that's a real concern here now. I think we're at 35 percent bed occupancy rate across the country. But the worry is that suddenly those beds get filled up. And that's the concern. Yeah, and then uh, a lot of a lot of else hinges on that, you know, the whole outlook for the country and the economy and the recovery really is going to depend to a large extent on how much uh, activity Indonesia can sustain. Turning now to the presidential horse race, three years from the election, but there's a series of high quality polls and some politicking going on that has minds turning to uh, 2024. Governors are venturing forth to make their presences known. Anis Baswedan of Jakarta was out in central Java. We had Ridwan Kamil of West Java. He was in NTT touring the recovery from last month's um, cyclone Siroja. And polls have those two men, two or three, in, in the mid-team in terms of preferred president. And uh, the front runner, unsurprisingly, is uh, Subianto Prabowo. And he's in the low 20s. That, though, doesn't bode well for uh, Prabowo's chances. Because, I mean, he's a guy who has got to have 100% name ID. Everyone must know who he is. I mean, he's ran for president about 87 times. Last count? Numbers, it can't be too much more yeastiness to those numbers, yeah? No, he's at uh, 96%. So he's, he's officially in the uh, name recognition ad nauseum uh, level category. <laughs> just like you, Kevin. <laughs> just like we're from Massey Dispatch. That, uh, there's good data on that from the Survey Institute from an in-person poll. Those are, that's the key is to have polls conducted in person nowadays, not by telephone. It makes a big difference. There was, uh, there's, been a, there's been four of those. Uh, one of them was done in January by the Survey Institute, and it measured Parboa's name recognition at 96% because uh, he has run for president twice and vice president once. 
meanwhile, Ganjar Pranowo, the governor of Central Java, was at a mere 54%. So that's good and bad for him that, on the one hand, constitutes upside potential. He can uh, garner votes from people right now who aren't even aware that he exists, you can find out about him and hear the good news. But on the other hand, uh, it's a double-edged sword because he needs that publicity and he's only the governor of the third largest province in the country. And um, if he doesn't get that uh, exposure, then he'll suffer and have a hard time catching up to Prabowo. Of course, he's getting lots of help, right, from Megawati, from, from the chairwoman of, of uh, PDIP. I mean, she is known for spotting talent, putting ego aside and doing what it will take to the party and, and, and the country. Selfless dedication. You know, just to be the devil's advocate here, um, her candidate did win the uh, Jakarta governor election in 2012 and the presidency twice. So uh, on paper, it's hard to falter for uh, her, uh, uh, the madness in her method. She was so enthusiastic about those choices too, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, we, we don't could have uh, won by serious landslides uh, otherwise. Because, uh, yeah, she was very reluctant to back Widodo in um, the, at least the first two of those elections because she wanted somebody closer to her, uh, if not her, uh, herself, uh, running. And uh, if her priority is to maintain her own paramount control over the party. And then also another priority is to perpetuate uh, her lineage or her clans, uh, the the descendants of Sukarno uh, controlling PDIP in, in future. And uh, if it's possible to, to win the presidency also, well, that's nice too, but uh, that's that's not the foremost priority. So condescending to nominate somebody for president who is not rigidly loyal to her personally uh, goes against the grain. We should know here that Megawati Sukarnaputri is the daughter of uh, Sukarno, the, um, the first president of Indonesia and the chairwoman of um, Partai Demokrasi Indonesia Perjuangan. I did that from memory. And don't laugh at my accent. I practiced. <laughs> Thank you very much. The Indonesia Dem Democratic Party has struggled. Uh, who is she favoring? It, it can't be Puan, the daughter. Okay, so, um, yeah, it's not going to be herself, I don't think, because her name doesn't even crop up in uh, opinion polls. That, that's how low her... Uh, support is for her own presidential run, even though she has been president in the past and she's uh, advanced in years, but um, not in her dotage by any means. So could be her daughter, uh, Puan Maharani, the Speaker of Parliament, but Puan's popularity is in the low single digits and does not appear to be getting higher, although it does seem as if Puan is deliberately trying to uh, become more assertive as a means to garner attention for herself. She's been pointedly critical, for example, of the Widodo administration's messaging regarding COVID, not policies, but about its messaging. And the, so a third option uh, is Tri Yurish Maharini, the newly appointed social affairs minister, previously mayor of Surabaya, uh, who's a, a municipal a civil servant veteran. Uh, she's in her mid 50s and uh, she's had a stellar record for dedication and clean governance as mayor of the second largest city. Uh, and um, Megawati has praised her in public, but and, and she has some popularity. She's uh, significantly more popular than Puan, uh, but significantly less than Ganjar. What's Ganjar like on the on the hustings? How good of a campaigner is he? Uh, pretty good because uh, he uh, has a lot of energy and enthusiasm for it. If anything, he's too good, really. I mean, he, he definitely comes across as a politician who wants your vote. <laughs> so you can always uh, rub people the wrong way and be counterproductive. But um, 
uh, he's uh, he's creative and innovative and uh, is, is always uh, reaching out. So uh, he can be a formidable campaigner, I think. What's interesting is he's also really polished his policy stances to become more nuanced uh, as he has uh, uh, gained experience. So 10 years ago, he was a member of the uh, Bank Century sort of uh, entity in parliament that examined the takeover of the Trouble Bank by uh, the uh, Udiono administration in 2008. And the whole purpose of that entity in parliament was to just punish uh, Sri Mulyani, who that was her first stint as finance minister. And in, indeed, it compelled her basically to resign in May 2010. So yeah, he was part of that effort, which was really misguided at the time. But those types of antics have not uh, recurred since then. And instead, he's had this uh, record of uh, hands-on, generally effective governance of a, a province that has a lot of uh, things going for it in, in recent years. Bank Century, of course, the bank that collapsed under mountains of debt. I forget how much. Uh, even after they pumped a whole bunch of, of um, government money into it. And the, so there was these accusations of, um, of corruption. And that was directed at uh, Sri Mulyani. Is that, a, is, that, is, that, is that about right? Um, yeah, and, and Budiono, um, uh, the, I guess, and there are all sorts of allegations. None of them had any credibility whatsoever, um, and, and there was an audit done by the state audit agency, which was headed by a uh, really disreputable, notorious former tax official whom Sri Mulyani had sacked. Uh, so that report, I don't think, was particularly credible, and it was very legalistic. Um, so, you know, Bank Century was a terrible bank and it was deemed to be systemic at the time and uh, endangering other banks in the system during the time of that recession. And so the government intervened to uh, stabilize it um, and then it proved more costly than they anticipated and probably the stabilization efforts weren't done perfectly. But uh, all of it was quite justified and routine, in fact. Um, but it was a, an action that enabled uh, Srivaliani's enemies, particularly Gold cars, Aborizal Bakri, a coal tycoon who was facing uh, the possibility of having to pay higher taxes uh, due to uh, efforts by Sri Mulyani to collect more state revenue from the resources sector. And then so they used this against her. So coming back to me now, listeners need to remember that in Indonesia's system, it's all very well to be to have a high profile, but you need to have a party backing you. And so, you know, Prabowo is, has got um, Garindra his own political vehicle, uh, of course. Anis probably has the backing of, of PKS, the Islamic Party. Ridwan Kamil, what would his party be? Getting back to the present day, <laughs> moving fast forwarding from 2008 to 2021 here. So Prabowo leads. The, the best uh, poll to look at is an in-person poll conducted by Kompas uh, three weeks ago, and it showed him with 21% with 22% undecided or not answering. And uh, another 20% pr uh, preferring other candidates. And, and then there's another five candidates who garnered support levels in that Compass poll. Um, second place was uh, Anis Baswedan, uh, about 13%. And then Ganjar Pranowo with 10 And uh, then beneath him was West Java Governor Ridwan Kamil and Tourism Minister Sandy Uno, who had been you know, Prabowo's running mate for vice president last time around. And former and former deputy governor, vice governor of Jakarta, don't forget that, for about 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah, that was his only elected office, yes. So Prabowo leads, but voters really have an affinity, clearly, for proven regional heads. That's another key facet. And then a, a third feature of this race is that the same elect 
electoral nominating rules are in place. So a ticket for president has to have backing from a party or alliance of parties that accounts for 20% of seats in the current parliament. And uh, there are nine parties in parliament. And um, as you mentioned, none of these parties really have solid, firm attachments to any particular individual except for Garindra with Prabowo and probably PKS with Anis Basweda. Otherwise, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of permutations. And the parliament is, is very fragmented. Only PDIP has more than 20% on its own. So that's the only party that can nominate its own candidate. All the other parties are going to have to ally with one another. But there's not a lot of real uh, ideological stridency in the parliament, one way or the other. Um, and then a lot of these candidates uh, have feed in multiple camps. Uh, they're quite versatile, especially Sandy Uno and Ridwan Kamil. And Anis Baswedan is, uh, to a certain extent, as well. So uh, there's a lot of possibilities yet. I think we can leave um, Sandy Uno over to one side for now. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, uh, I don't think so. I mean, he, he's, he's, a, he's a bonafide candidate, yeah. And uh, he kind of fits a bill, I think, especially for supporters of Golkar, who might not really be quite comfortable enough yet with Prabowo, but who you know, don't have a candidate of their own. And, and maybe they, they see Ridwan Kamil as being uh, too exotic. And so there are, in this race, when it comes to uh, the, the presidential race, a couple, couple contests to watch then, or a couple, sorry, a couple stories to watch is where does Ridwan Kamil go, if at all, and uh, who will head, who will get the nod from PDIP? Will it be Ganjar Pranol? Will it be uh, Megawati's daughter Puan? Or will it be the former Surabaya mayor, Tri Rismaharini? Stay tuned. Of course, the uh, the fortunes of any of them will depend on the on the fortunes of the economy. And uh, the latest indicator suggests that it, the economy shrunk again in the first quarter down 0.7%. Just in context, uh, the Indonesian economy tends to grow at a clip, has been growing at an average clip of about 5% a year. Shrinking 0.7% is actually pretty bad. And the fourth quarter it shrunk even more, more than 2%. But that data may not be as bad as it looks because listeners need to remember that the first case of COVID Last year emerged March 2nd or 3rd, and the lockdowns then were optional for a few weeks before becoming mandatory in the beginning of April. So last year didn't have a lot of COVID-19 baked into the cake, so to speak. Uh, So that portends a rather nice second quarter on the way, at least in terms of the macro indicators. That's right. Yeah. Um, so the, the first quarter of uh, 2020 was still registering 4% growth year on year relative to the first quarter of 2019. Uh, in other words, the, the real impact on the economy happened only in the following quarter, in the second quarter of 2020, when uh, growth was negative 5%. And so that was the big dip. So now this next quarter coming up at the end of June, could very well show uh, pretty eye-popping growth numbers year on year just because of that that base effect of the incredible weakness of the uh, second quarter of 2020. So that could very well be uh, 6% or 7% growth uh, in the second quarter. But again, that that uh, depends on the transmission rates after it'll feature. Right. I mean, exports have been going at a pretty, pretty fast clip, actually more than fast. They were explosive in the first quarter. And, and FDI did fairly well. It was up about 13% in the first quarter. My concern is that, you know, I was, I've been covering this in the, in the region um, for my paper for the um, Singapore Straits Times, and there is definitely a sign of recovery. But I think it's the external sector. 
we're we're seeing some money come in and exports go out to the big to the big uh, economies China and the US which are booming my concern is the domestic economy will lag and it will be very closely tied to the pandemic if there is a if there are surges and decreased mobility household incomes will hurt and consumer confidence is still in negative territory Hmm. Well, interesting question. Um, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. I'm trying to think through here. Um, you're going to have to one you know, wrinkle, of course, is the economy of Bali, which is sort of in its own category. Um, that's going to depend on when tourism snaps back. But um, 56% of GDP is household consumers. And the thing about them is that they're not really well banked. So they're not depending on credit cards to, to fuel their consumption. It really is just a cash economy. And a lot of that cash comes from commodity exports and commodity prices appear to be firming up right now because of that demand you mentioned in China and the U.S. So, you know, it, there could be quite a pretty reasonably strong snapback in demand, actually, uh, uh, this year. But it all depends on those post-edal future transmission rates. It's, yeah, it, it's just so weird because normally they're, you know, a booming economy when, when exports and investment are soaring, you could pretty well bank on it that um, flowing in, into the consumer economy. But I just don't see the linkages yet. I th- think there might be a little bit of decoupling there because if you have to race out of town, if you're my air conditioner uh, repair guy uh, who has to race out of town, you're not in a very festive mood if you're trying to evade police Police block blockades on the way home to wherever he's from, West Java. I don't know. I just think uh, the mood of regular Indonesians. And that's the pod. Our producer is Stephen Handoko. Editing by Aditya Akbar. Music by the Blue Dot Sessions. As always, you can contact us over Instagram at onthelevel underscore media. If you're listening to us through a podcast app, please hit subscribe and rate us. It helps. This podcast is a production of On The Level Media. I'm Jeff Hutton. Bye for now.